Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with all the inspiration you need for the upcoming Thanksgiving feast. If you're hungry for beautiful food and remarkable wines and some juicy conversation, then you won't want to miss this show. Every Sunday in your radio, I bring you fresh ingredients, recipes, and kitchen wisdom from celebrity chefs and authors, culinary experts. I give you travel insight, wine suggestions, cocktail inspiration, and more because a meal is a terrible thing to waste, don't you think? I've got lots of quick recipes, prep advice, and some really scrumptious ideas at chefjamie.com, C-H-E-F-J-A-M-I-E.com, where I'm always serving up seconds. And this hour, I guarantee to make you hungry. I believe that chefs are artists, and as great cooks and chefs, we love crafting signature dishes and then folding in our own creative touches and letting bits of our personalities marinate throughout. Blending textures and flavors to create the ultimate experience is what I like to call my specialty. And by the way, you will learn it all here. So don't touch your dial because I'm bringing you all the inspiration you need for the upcoming holiday meals, gathering friends and family together with fabulous food. By the way, you can always sign up for a weekly email that delivers recipes direct to your inbox and links from this show on my homepage at chefjamie.com. Just look for the newsletter sign up. You can always find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And don't worry, if you miss part of a radio program of mine, well, then just go to iTunes and search under podcasts, Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. So we are all about Thanksgiving seeing that the holiday is just a couple of weeks away and it is the best meal of the year. The secret to crazy good mashed potatoes is creme fraiche and steeping garlic in the water when you cook the potatoes. You'll find the recipe at chefjamie.com. Also on the website, how to make a silky gravy in advance of the big day and how to make the perfect turkey, plus all the pies and sweets you'll ever need. But as I spoke about turkey last week in my introduction, everything you needed to know about my favorite heritage bird to brine or not to brine, that is the question. The perfect accompaniment as we continue our Thanksgiving conversation is, of course, stuffing. Now, who doesn't love stuffing or dressing, as some call it, right? I believe that every family has a favorite, but this is my lowdown on Stuffing 101 as we continue the turkey talk. When it comes to a great stuffing, whether you're a bread lover or a cornbread lover or a wild rice lover or even potato blended into your bread stuffing, there's something truly creative about the spin that you can put on the ultimate stuffing. And I never think that one will be disappointed with the more that you chock full, just pack your stuffing. You can create your own recipe by keeping the following proportions in line and in mind, by the way. 
So you always need a starch. You always need a liquid, a liquid rather, uh, like broth or wine or some splash of liqueur or a combination of all of them. I like lots of additions, by the way, like fresh chopped herbs and caramelized onions and dried or fresh fruit. And then some people love sausage in their stuffing or seafood like oysters or lots of other meat opportunities or choices. A recent stuffing that I had, in fact, getting together with a food styling friend of mine, since we work on Thanksgiving and photos for Thanksgiving back in July, um, we made a a beautiful Asian-inspired stuffing with the sweet Chinese sausage, and it was outrageously delicious. Now, consider that for every one cup of starch, whether it be bread or cornbread or otherwise, you need about two tablespoons to three tablespoons of liquid, just enough to moisten the bread. And that's my best chef's tip. If you make sure that your bread cubes or your croutons are truly dried out, then when you add the liquid, you'll get just enough moisture without any mush. And when it comes to stuffing the bird... I always suggest that if you do like the stuffing that comes from the turkey, which is really full of flavor, of course, you should always cook an extra casserole of stuffing so that you have enough to serve the crowd, but so that you get the crusty, delicious bits on the edges of the casserole pan. And then you also get that different sort of dichotomy of texture from the stuffing that is from the turkey itself. Now, to stuff or not to stuff, that is the question. But most importantly, remember that your turkey stuffing from inside a bird must reach a temperature of at least 165 degrees. Now, for lots of delicious stuffing recipes, I have them all posted at chefjamie.com. Everything from a chorizo, apricot, and gramagne stuffing I love to make to a sourdough apple stuffing, if you like that sour style bread as your base. And then I make a stuffing muffin. Uh, In fact, in a muffin pan, you can make them a day in advance and reheat them. And you could use your signature stuffing recipe. But I love instead of putting out bread or rolls that you can actually put out a muffin, muffin made of stuffing. And then the day after Thanksgiving, you always take the stuffing and you slice what's left in the casserole dish and you toast it in the toaster oven and you use it as stuffing bread for your sandwich. Oh yes, oh my, you heard it here. You can thank me later. Now, when it comes to the remainder of your great turkey feast, we've covered the turkey talk, the stuffing 101. And next Sunday, in fact, I'll talk all about the simplest sweets you can make to definitely please the palates of your friends and family. But I wanted to take an extra moment today and talk about the ultimate pairing. Yes, when it comes to what I think is the perfect wine slash beer pairing for Thanksgiving this year, I'm thinking that you should go with cider. Think outside the box this year. Why not? Because I believe that a Sauvignon Blanc or even bubbles will go all the way through the meal as a nice compliment. And I do think that you can uh, certainly choose a, a good, rich red, something that has a little bit of complexity to it, like Pinot Noir, which is a perfect pairing to turkey. But cider might have been the drink the nation was built on, but post-prohibition has made it something of 
a no man's drink, and it is gaining popularity once again. So why not be different this year and consider the merits of cider. Cider is actually giving wine and beer a run for its money. And so I thought I would help you navigate the drink's newly established territory and enlighten you to what cider is. Now, simply put, it's crushed fermented apples. And it's made pretty much anywhere apples are grown. So here in the U.S., that means New York State, Virginia, Michigan, California, Oregon, and Washington, among others. And then in Europe, it's made in northern France and parts of Germany and Spain and Poland. There are lots of ciders out there, though, and I love the complement of apple and poultry. I think the cider will pair well no matter what style of stuffing you make. And the cider just works well with any centerpiece, whether it be poultry Or if you're considering going an alternative route, it has a little bit of effervescence. It has a subtle sweetness, and it will pair well throughout your meal. Now, there are lots of different ciders out there, in fact. You can get sparkling cider in a six-pack. It comes in bottles. You can find the French style of cider, which is cidre, uh, C-I-D-R-E, a a centuries-old farmhouse drink, and it comes in bottles, and it has a, a bit of a crisper finish, and one that I like, in fact, so you could consider pouring from a cider bottle similar to the size of a wine bottle. And then consider that sweet ciders go well with spicier foods. So if you tend to pepper your dish as well, go a little sweeter. If you tend to like the cleaner flavors, then go a little drier. But it's that beautiful acidity and the the rusticity and the earthiness that I think would just be beautiful. If you're inspired by cider, I'd love to know. You can always email me direct with your Thanksgiving questions, or I'd love to see what you're serving. Send your menu. We can swap recipes. My email address direct is jamie at chefjamie.com. And on the website, in fact, at chefjamie.com, you won't want to miss this week my roasted Cornish game hens with vanilla cherry sauce. It's a great alternative if you're serving a small crowd instead of making a great big turkey. I also have a pumpkin pecan coffee cake that is truly sweet and autumn inspired and a cranberry mold wine, something that I think is just so comforting and festive at the holidays. Keep it here because there is so much more delicious conversation coming up in your radio. We have a chock full hour and I invite you to sit down at the kitchen table and join me as Chef William Bradley is coming up next. He is the executive chef of Addison at the Grand Del Mar and a Relay and Chateau master chef. In fact, he's talking about simple flavors, Thanksgiving and some French bistro inspired dishes. Plus, Dan Jurafsky is here. He's the author of The Language of Food and he's waxing poetic, quite a genius of a gentleman. Plus, Carol Fenster will join us at the end of the hour. She's cooking gluten-free with 100 simple new recipes, and you won't want to miss it. Sharpen your cooking skills and please your palate, because art comes in all forms. I just happen to love the form that you can eat. Stay tuned. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I'll be right back. Have taste, will travel. 
Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We do have the best culinary thinkers on this show, as I often say. Ladies and gentlemen, we are welcoming back Chef William Bradley, a polished, passionate, and undeniable talent who creates a feast for the senses nightly at Addison Restaurant on the property at the lavish and breathtaking Grand Del Mar Resort in San Diego, which I love, and at the new French bistro Bijou in the heart of La Jolla, California. Chef has racked up award after award. Back in 2010, William received the designation of Grand Chef from Relay and Chateau, one of only 160 chefs on five continents to hold the title and the only member in San Diego. Both the highly coveted AAA Five Diamond and the Forbes Five Star Awards have been awarded to the Grand Almar and Addison over the past years, the first and only restaurant, by the way, in San Diego to receive, receive the these designations. But it's his simplistic approach that I admire most, his tremendous dedication to his craft, and the fact that he loves to share his knowledge. So Chef William Bradley is here, and we're about to dig in. Welcome back, Chef. I'm glad to have you. Thank you. Long time no talk. I know, but in the interim, I have been um, eating and dining at your restaurants and loving every minute. Um, I cleaned my plate of luscious steak tartare. I sure, was sure. oh, I was tempted to lick the plate of the coco van. Um, but for those that haven't been, I would love for you to share the new restaurant Bijou in La Jolla or a little bit about it with us. We've had the great opportunity to take over an existing restaurant that um, was at, at one time it was considered a Maya La Jolla uh, for, for a few years and then we took it over and we kind of changed the concept. Uh, myself and um, a manager that used to be here and then my chef de cuisine that's there now, Sean Geffen, worked with me for a number of years. Yes at uh, Addison, so he kind of understands the repertoire hmm. uh, of what we look for in a restaurant. So it was a lot of fun because it was a chance to do uh, food on a different level. I guess as chefs, as you move through your career, you want to kind of change your hand to something that's uh, a different approach, a different challenge. So going back and really trying to make a restaurant that is very, very traditional in the sense of a French bistro was a lot of fun. You know, and a lot of the recipes are are some very old recipes, obviously. And, and we wanted to make sure that we stuck to the original concept of a French bistro and it didn't change it in any fashion. So it was a lot of fun. What I love about the cuisine itself is that it's a collection of the classics with a contemporary twist and then right. the French wines that pair. I thought it, it was a, a, a beautiful... Uh, dedication really to the French right. style um, and and no one better to do it than you in my opinion um, and every bite is a jewel Bijou standing for jewel right in French right and that was a lot of fun you know coming up with names of the sure. restaurant it fits so well being hmm. you know what they call La Jolla is the, is the jewel so Bijou is just really fitting um, for the area as well so it's been it's, like I said it's been a lot a lot of enjoyment hmm. um, a different challenge but still just as gratifying and rewarding just to see people sit down, relax, and take a different approach to what they're used to, what I've been producing for a number of years here at Addison. So. Well, I can't wait to go back. And, and that brings us to uh, the next 
part or stage in our conversation. I know that fabulous foodies across the country and around the world have come to know your cuisine for its simplicity and the fact that you talk about honing your craft and continuing to elevate your knowledge, your expertise, and share the wealth. You have the most extraordinarily trained kitchen of any I've ever been in. Uh, The procedures, the organization, the cleanliness is at the ultimate, no doubt. And I think there's something extraordinary about a chef, you specifically, that would take a signature dish like risotto that you have mastered and built a following for and remove it from the menu. This was very controversial, William. Um, And I'm wondering, on behalf of many, if the risotto is coming back or if you want to share some secrets to it. Right. I mean, the risotto is one of those labor of love dishes and it's something that over the years i'm again i'm just a firm believer and everything's been done before us so it's my job as i've said before as a chef just to really uh, maximize the deliciousness of each ingredient and and know when to serve it at the proper temperature at the proper time at the proper season so risotto was something that obviously you can use throughout the seasons and we finally kind of came to a decision that it, it might be interesting to kind of retire the risotto for a while from, from the repertoire here at Addison. And, and we have, and it's, it's been sad, but now that it's <laughs> truffle season, I think it's going to come back. I was just going to allude to that. So I know you love working with truffles. Uh, right, how right. can we incorporate them at home? Is risotto the best preparation? Well, it, 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 it depends. I, again... I think risotto is obviously very texture-driven. It's a very neutral flavor. It obviously adheres to anything that you season it with. So with truffles being such a unique and distinguished characteristics in terms of texture and flavor, Mm -hmm. it is obviously a very, very amazing combination when done properly. It's just so simple, and it allows for the two things to really, really speak for themselves and also harmonize at the same time. And it's not intimidating, right? So you're taking a very peasant thing as risotto and you're mixing it with a very luxury ingredient. It makes for a very special dish. I think that you take what might be a challenge to novices or even connoisseurs and you remove the intimidation. Maybe it's the simplistic approach that you take like to the salmon that you make that I'll never forget. It was the most gloriously buttery, brilliant mouthfeel I've ever experienced right. from seafood. And you've applied that to so many of your dishes. The, the like I call it a culinary mentality. And I'm grateful. You shared a signature recipe with us. I posted it at chefjamie.com to honor you. Um, and by the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late because Chef William Bradley is here of Addison Restaurant at the Grand Del Mar Resort, one of my favorite places in the world, and uh, the new Bijou French Bistro in La Jolla, California. Your butternut squash velouté, perfect for upcoming Thanksgiving feasts. Um, If you would break it down for us, because I think this recipe is the perfect example of your style. Right. It's just one of those things that I I I want to produce food that people are familiar with. But when they come and they sit down and they taste the cuisine, it's unique in its sense because it has its own stamp. So with that, again, I don't find that, you know, as, 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 as styles change and chefs evolve and trends come and go, I still find every day that, you know, there's 
salmon is such an amazing ingredient. Butternut squash is such an amazing mm. ingredient. When cooking the soup, I want to master the technique to really honor the ingredient. And sometimes it's very, very, very simple in its approach, but then the result, if the technique is proper, can be very, 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 very luxurious. You can learn more at thegranddelmar.com where you can follow Chef William Bradley and his fine cuisine. And again, the butternut squash velouté that should grace your holiday table. Chef William Bradley of Addison's recipe posted at chefjamie.com. It's really fun to serve it with burnt marshmallows. Oh, I love it. Oh, that's fabulous. Okay, you heard it here from Chef William Bradley's mouth. You can cook confidently with burnt marshmallows. Oh, I love it. You just made our our holiday sweeter. Thank you, Chef, so much. My pleasure. Be well. There's more delicious conversation in your radio right after this. Please don't go away. Taking you on a culinary exploration every Sunday, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Finally, a linguist is reading menus. That linguist is Dan Jurafsky, Stanford linguistics professor to be exact. And after years of research motivated by his love of food, his findings are beautifully written in his new book release entitled The Language of Food. Dan Jurafsky is officially a genius. Yes, the recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship, nicknamed the Genius Award, and he's waxing poetic, combining his love for gastronomic history and linguistics, sharing insight into the words we use for everyday foods and their origins. For example, ketchup. We all know it and love it as that sweet, sour, tomato-based topping, right? It's practically its own food group, but it didn't always contain tomatoes, and it definitely wasn't always American. Well, Dan Jurafsky is here, and he joins us live to dish. Jamie, thanks so much for having me. Yes, of course. Okay, can we talk ketchup first? Yeah, what I like about ketchup, and it's just like you said, the, the... The language of food is all around us, and we can learn so much from the things that we normally just kind of let us pass by, like the names of food. So take the name of the word ketchup. It turns out the name itself is a signal. You know, you think about American foods like hamburgers or frankfurters or french fries. They actually, you know, we're an immigrant nation. The, the words tell you where they're from. Hamburgers from Hamburg and Frankfurters are from Frankfurt. You know, it gives you a hint what's going on. But ketchup actually turns out to be the same thing. So uh, the story starts in the 17th century. Imagine that you're an English sailor sailing to China. China's the, the great economic capital of the world at the time. It's where they make porcelain and silk and tea comes from there and spices are traded there. So how do you get to, 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 um, to Asia? You take these long... Um, uh, ship rides and it's hot and you're you know what are you going to drink if you're a sailor on these ships well you drink wine and beer it's hard to get fresh water and the wine and the beer both go sour you're on the ship for months and months it crosses the equator it's hot and and the the british and the dutch they get to asia and they find these chinese ethnic chinese um fish sauce makers living in indonesia um that they trade with and they're making this new thing called eric eric is um the first commercially produced liquor it's an ancestor of rum. So they're very excited because liquor doesn't go bad in the heat, and they buy thousands of barrels of Eric for the British Navy. And while they're there, they buy some of the local fish sauce. And what's the local fish sauce called in this local Chinese dialect? It's called gedzup. 
So they take Gads this up. Gads up, this fish sauce. <laughs> yeah, Gads up. Just like modern Vietnamese or Thai fish sauce, the exact same thing, you know, caramel-colored, salty, savory, umami. umami. And they bring it home to yes. England. And then what do you do if you have a very expensive imported product? You create knockoffs. So very quickly, there are hmm. knockoff ketchups made out of mushrooms, made out of walnuts. Um, there's a walnut ketchup recipe, actually, from Jane Austen's family. And then tomatoes come from the New World, and by 1800, they're adding tomatoes. And then only later in America, we start adding a lot of sugar, and we end up with our modern, you know, American condiment. This uh, kind of really, it's more of a chutney, if you think about it, a sweet and sour tomato sauce. I think that's extraordinary to, to understand where it came from, and then to take that knowledge and apply it to our daily kitchen rituals. Your story makes me want to make my own ketchup because then I can adjust the umami or the salt or the, the, the sugar, the sweet, to make that ketchup more pure, let's say, or closer to the original. And that's what gets me closer to my food. So I think it's just fascinating. Um, yeah, yeah. There, there's a great scene in, in uh, I think it's Meet Me in St. Louis, where they're, you know, your families used to make ketchup back yes. then before. Uh, and, and there's a great scene of them making, you know, the whole family making ketchup in this hmm. big pot. <laughs> and, and we're getting back to our roots. And so many of the artisan cooks and chefs across the country are making their own condiments rather than taking them from the bottle today. And, uh, and I think it's a wonderful thing. You speak about the copa amounts of sugar we put in ketchup, um, maybe why it tastes good to so many American palates. But there's a, a wonderful chapter in your book um, where you speak about why the Chinese don't eat dessert, because that particular word, dessert, does not have translation, right? Absolutely. So, you know, you think about it, um, dessert is, in fact, that we got the word from French, English got the word from French. It didn't come into English until the, until the late 1700s. So, um, in the Middle Ages, if you think about how people ate in medieval Europe, they, you know, they used sugar. Sugar was very expensive back then, but they used it throughout the meal. So you might have, you know, a, a dish of rabbits and ginger and sugar, or, or, um, or, or you know, lamb with with uh, lemons and sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that that the sweet thing belongs at the end, really, the the, the English got it from the French, and the French got it from the Spanish, the Spanish got it from the Moors, and you can trace it all the way back to Baghdad, to the Persians. This, uh, the famous Greek historian Herodotus, he was talking about the Persians and how their food differs from the Greeks. And he said the Persians are very obsessed with dessert. They have a million kinds of dessert, and they mock the Greeks for not having enough dessert. <laughs> so this idea of the Persian world was full of these almond sweets, you know, things that became like modern baklava and things. Um, uh, things that are the origin, in fact, of our modern macaroons. All, they all descend back from Persia. So this idea that sweet things come at the end really was invented in Persia and then borrowed through Europe, and other countries just don't have it. So China has a word that we now use, tian dian in Mandarin or timban in Cantonese. We can use it to talk about dessert in America, but really it just means a sweet course. It could happen anytime. It doesn't have to happen at the end of the meal. This idea that that what it means to be uh, an American meal is to have a sweet thing at the end is, is really a modern idea. Proving very much so why when you go to an Asian bakery, you find much more savory than you do sweet. The breads... Yeah, yeah. Lots, of my, lots of my friends from Asia yes. find that, uh, that American sweets are too sweet for them. Yeah, coyingly uh, sweet, yes. Yeah, yeah. But that's, that's just not the tradition there. And, mm-hmm. and that, again, we get that all the way, you can trace it all the way back to, you know, 600 A.D. Baghdad. Dan, if you would pause there but continue the genius. We'll take a quick break. There's more on the language of food right after this.
We're back with the author of The Language of Food, Dan Jarafsky, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio as he waxes poetic. With Thanksgiving just around the corner, if you would, um, and just a little bit of time left with you, um, and I really appreciate the conversation. This is what I believe uh, is the root of how food feeds our souls. Uh, there's a fascinating history to the holiday itself, the the very American holiday. So um, leave us with your thoughts on Thanksgiving and, and your research for that matter. Absolutely. Well, let me just start with turkeys. I mean, why do we name turkeys? You know, it's, an, it's a bird that was domesticated in Mexico. Why do we name it after the country of Turkey? Which, in fact, it was named after the country of Turkey. Hmm. And the answer has to do with, it tells you about the history. It tells you about global trade. So the, the brief story is, the Portuguese had colonies, this is, I think, around 1500, right? They had colonies in West Africa. They were getting gold and exotic birds. They had colonies in Brazil. And they had, they had broken into the spice trade in India, and they were sailing around Africa to India. And they were bringing all these products, including turkeys from the New World. They were bringing them to Antwerp, Belgium, and this is in the 1500s, selling all these products. And the Turks had a very strict rule of secrecy. No, you couldn't publish maps. You know, captains couldn't talk about where they came from. And they were bringing a bird from Africa that we now call the guinea fowl. You may have eaten guinea fowl. And uh, they were all bringing turkeys from the New World. And the two birds got confused. And guinea fowls had been called turkey cocks because they were imported via the Turks. So this turkey cock and the, the new bird from the New World got completely confused for hundreds of years. Shakespeare got the two birds confused. <laughs> and so the name turkey cock kind of got attached to our American turkey. And so, you know, uh, we, we, the wrong, we call the bird by the wrong name. And it was very popular in Europe by that name. So the turkey cock was, you know, mentioned in Shakespeare. It was, it was an English, you know, Christmas bird, roast bird. And so when the, 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 um, the pilgrims came back to America, of course, they brought with them their holiday bird, which was the turkey. And they were kind of surprised to find that there were local turkeys when they got there. A lot of the the taste of Thanksgiving really come from the old world. You know, why do we eat um, the, you know, pumpkin pie? Why does it have all of those beautiful medieval spices, your, your, um, your you know, your cinnamons and your, and your, your cardamoms and, and, sure. and so on? Yeah, it's uh, your cloves, hmm. it's uh, nutmegs, it's, it's, a, it's a remembrance of the medieval foods that we were eating, and, and holidays preserve some of those uh, ancient traditions. I think it's absolutely riveting to and compelling and all of those wonderful things engrossing to really understand the food that we eat and how it's described and how it's named um, stemming so far back, um, but still so very current in our, our daily meals. And uh, it's a fascinating read from beginning to end. Thank you for sharing your knowledge, your passion, your genius, Dan. I hope that you continue to write as I look forward to reading your next book release. Oh, thanks so much. And thanks yeah. so much for having me on the Fabulous. show. Fabulous. The book is called The Language of Food. And we've excerpted a piece at chefjamie.com where you can bring Dan Jarafsky's book uh, into your living room. You won't get up from the couch, I guarantee you. It is uh, a book for anyone who loves food and or conversation. He is Dan Jarafsky, and you heard him here. There's more delicious conversation in your radio right after this. Don't go away.
Savor the flavor, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. The author of 11 gluten-free cookbooks is back, sharing her innovative, delicious vegan and vegetarian recipes, so food lovers rejoice. If you battle celiac disease, have a gluten sensitivity, or you just choose to eat gluten-free, then I know your challenge to put meals on the table quickly that fit your eating style, but... Here she is, Carol Fenster, to the rescue. Carol is making it easy and delicious, as always, in her newest cookbook release entitled The 100 Best Gluten-Free Recipes, and I am delighted to have you back and in our radios. Carol, welcome. Thank you, Jamie. Happy to be with you. of course. Okay, so you know, or as I hope you know from our last conversation some months back, Carol, I love your polenta bites recipe with the sun-dried tomatoes. So good. And I always keep a tube of store-bought packaged polenta in the pantry now. So I thought we would kick off this conversation by asking you to remind us again of some of the pantry staples that every gluten-free eater should keep on hand. Well, in addition to that tube of of, um, polenta, which I keep on my pantry shelf too, I always have beans on hand because you can do so much with beans and so quickly, whether it's a soup or um, a stew or mash them into a a bean dip of some sort. I always keep canned tomatoes on the shelf, even though it's nice to use fresh when you can. If you're a quick and busy cook, you don't have time to, um, you know, process them yourself. So I always keep that. I like keeping chicken broth on hand, although you can make your own when you're in a rush. Um, store-bought chicken broth is really good to have. Um, I keep little things like capers and um, sometimes a, a store-bought uh, marinara sauce just for those times when I'm going to need a quick dish. I love keeping marinated artichokes um, on my shelf. In terms of baking, which is really important when we're talking about gluten-free, yes. I, it's good, especially at holiday time, to make sure you have all the flours you need because, as you know, we don't typically bake with just one gluten-free flour. We have to use a blend of flours, and so you got to check your your inventory, and make sure you're ready for baking as well. There are so many great recipes in your new book for baking and for savory as well, along with sweet. Congratulations. It amazes me that you continue to compile these wonderful recipes that incorporate gluten-free ingredients and really fabulous flavor. And I don't eat gluten-free, as you know, but I'm all for, you know, considering a gluten-free sensitivity or how I feel after a meal or how it makes my body function. And I love that you're arming us with new inspiration. And I love that you shared a recipe as well. Maybe we should start with dessert first, Carol, because life is very uncertain, you know. I agree. Okay, good. And by the way, if you just tuned in, you're late. She is Carol Fenster, author, teacher, consultant, and she is all about gluten-free cooking, and the new book is called 100 Best Quick Gluten-Free Recipes. So the holidays are just around the corner, and you make a no-cook cookie ball that I know has some um, wonderful memories and family significance associated with it. It is called a white chocolate apricot and almond ball, and it's uh, my mother made it decades ago when I was growing up, mm. and uh, all it is is white chocolate chips and uh, dried apricots and almonds and um, a little bit of sweetener, and you whirl that in a food processor until it's kind of all mashed up, and then you shape it into balls and put them in these pretty little foil liners that you use for mini cupcakes, and then you refrigerate it. There's no baking. So automatically, within literally seconds, you have this cute little 
decadent cookie that you can refrigerate and then pull out at a moment's notice when company is at the door and you weren't expecting them, or maybe in advance of a dinner party when it's good to get some of the work done ahead of time. And um, because my mother made it, it has fond memories to me, but I also like a little bit of hooch in it, so uh, <laughs> this recipe, I think, has rum, but you could use whatever flavor you like, okay. and it's just a really celebration kind of dessert. Now you're speaking my language. I'm in. And if you could call it a gluten-free white chocolate apricot and almond rum ball, then everyone will eat it. She is the former associate editor at Living Without Magazine, but let me tell you, you are living with so much fabulous flavor when you are cooking from a savory palate. That is the website where you will find Carol Fenster, PhD, savorypalette.com. Um, most importantly, please look for her new cookbook just released. It's called 100 Best Quick Gluten-Free Recipes. It will be your go-to repertoire for very efficient, simple, satisfying dishes that will feed a crowd and truly delight, especially those that are gluten-free. Carol, come back soon, please. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. You'll find an excerpted recipe so that you can make the holiday sweeter with Carol's gluten-free no-cook cookie balls from her family tradition to yours, posted at chefjamie.com with a direct link as well to 100 Best Quick Gluten-Free Recipes. So that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. I hope that I've inspired you to cook new dishes this week or to add new and exciting flavors to your signature dishes for your Thanksgiving feast. I'm all about great gatherings. And of course, you can find all of the recipes heard and spoken about on this show on my website at chefjamie.com. I'll leave you with this because it is my goal to make you a better cook in your own kitchen. It's what I like to call my last bite or my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation. And it's usually a recipe with only a few ingredients and it's super simple to make. And I'll post the specific measurements on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. So I love the autumn season. I love fall flavors and Oh, I love my morning cup of coffee. So if you were looking for a recipe to spike your morning cup of joe, then this is it. It makes a beautiful gift of food as well if you packed it in a small jar and brought it as a host or hostess gift if you were attending a friend's or family's Thanksgiving feast this year. It's my homemade pumpkin spice coffee syrup, and it takes only minutes and pennies to make, and you will have delicious coffee all season long. You combine one cup of water with three quarters of a cup of brown sugar and a teaspoon of pumpkin pie spice in a small saucepan pot. Bring it to a simmer to dissolve the sugar and infuse those pumpkin spices and then store it in an airtight container in the refrigerator right next to your creamer for up to a couple of weeks. I hope you'll join me once again at the table next Sunday. This is my culinary playground and I believe that you can sharpen your cooking skills and please your palate just by tuning in. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I thank you for listening once again, and I hope you continue to eat well.